And if you would, let's go ahead and take our Bibles this morning and go to Acts chapter number 3. Acts chapter number 3 as we begin. We're going to be in a number of passages this morning. Uh, Then also, if you have your copy of the Confession of Faith, we will be uh, making a brief reference to that this morning. Uh, We have been working our way through this particular chapter, chapter number 8 of Christ the Mediator. So all of these lessons have uh, detailed or have been part of the whole of viewing Christ as the mediator. And in Acts chapter number 3, I want to draw your attention to verse number 19. Acts chapter number 3, beginning there in verse number 19. The Bible tells us there, says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Now if you would, go over to Hebrews chapter number 5. Hebrews chapter number 5. And look with me at verse number 1. Hebrews chapter number 5, beginning there in verse number 1. Hebrews 5, verse number 1. The Bible tells us, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, was strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him called of God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you would, go to Luke. Luke chapter number number 1. Luke chapter number 1. And look with me at verse number 30 through 33. Luke 1, verses 30 through 33. 
Beginning there in verse 30, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Those three passages are three passages I took us to this morning that declare unto us the subject we're going to begin dealing with this morning that's still found in paragraph one of chapter number eight of our confession that refers to Jesus Christ as the prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. Primarily this morning, my intention is for us to really just have an introduction to these three offices of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he is, in fact, the prophet, the priest, and the king. Those three texts also show us that these were promises and prophecies that were given before the foundation of the world. Uh, Like everything else we've studied, uh, Jesus Christ was not a reaction to what was going on in society. He was not a reaction even to the fall of man, but rather part of the eternal purposes of God. Uh, Christ uh, was intentional. Uh, His coming was intentional. His coming to this earth was intentional. And so these offices of prophet, priest, and king are also according to the divine purposes of God. As we consider each one of these categories, we know that even beginning there in Luke, we see that as the angel of the Lord peered before Mary, uh, she is told by the angel that his name shall be Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom shall there be no end. So even before the incarnation of Christ, we see that the angel of the Lord had announced to Mary who had been chosen by God the Father to carry the Lord Jesus Christ so that he might be born on this earth and take on that robe of human flesh. But we see that that was part of a prophecy that was given. We look there at Hebrews chapter number 5 where Jesus is compared uh, along the same lines of the priest Melchizedek. But what made Jesus' priesthood different is that he would not have a beginning and he would not have an ending. We know that Melchizedek is a picture of no beginning and no ending, but Jesus truly would have that eternal priesthood. And then as this prophet, uh, we saw that the very first text we read, that prophet, uh, Jesus came to be that perfect prophet, the true prophet. Uh, We need to remember that even in the days before Jesus had come and even in the days after his ascension back to the right hand of the Father, there were many false prophets who had arisen. There are still false prophets today who are rising even amongst us today. And Jesus came to announce that he is the true prophet. Uh, that's what Peter was uh, preaching there in Acts 3 as we read that. He was, he was telling them the true prophet has already come and this prophet is coming and he has brought with him the message of repentance. Repent and therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. So we see in these offices that Jesus is in fact that prophet, priest, and king. 
Now, as we think about these offices of prophet, priest, and king, I want us to really look at this from the standpoint of how these offices, of course, they are found in Christ, but they originally began with man. And what I mean by that is we know that the first man that was placed on this earth, this first created man, was Adam. And we know that Adam was created in a perfect environment. Adam was created to be an accurate reflection of who God really is. And if you go back and you study the story of creation, you study the story of Adam, you will find that in all of those roles, Adam was intended to be. Adam was intended to be a prophet. He was intended to be a priest. And he was intended to be a king. In order to understand this, we need to consider what a prophet is. A prophet is one who has true knowledge of God. That true knowledge is not knowledge that is kept within the the inner man of that prophet, but that true knowledge of God is conveyed. It is spoken. It is told. The prophet must be able to convey that knowledge. Thirdly, that prophet must be chosen by God. A prophet does not choose himself. A prophet is chosen by God to have that knowledge and to be able to convey that knowledge. So Adam, in his creation, was intended to be that prophet. Secondly, he was also intended to be a priest. What is a priest? A priest is one that is able to represent himself to others or to others, to God, in rendering to God sacrifices that that God accepts. In other words, that priest is a representative. That priest is one that represents himself to God and gives the sacrifices that God accepts. And then, of course, a king is one who is given authority and dominion to rule and reign as God's representative. Now, the fact that Christ has these three offices finds this explanation. That's why we see the connection between the first Adam and the second Adam or the last Adam. Of course, the first Adam is Adam in the fall of man, and we're familiar with that. But Jesus himself in Scripture is referred to as the second Adam or the, the last Adam. And in the reality, Adam was a prophet in this sense. When God created Adam... Adam had a true knowledge, and he was at that moment before the fall, he was accurately reflecting who God was. So before sin enters into the world, before sin enters into Adam, Adam was in fact, he fulfilled and would have met the requirements of being a prophet. He had a true knowledge of God. He had an ability to convey that knowledge. We see that when we read the account in the book of Genesis. He had God's thoughts. He understood God's word correctly. When Adam sinned, Adam did not sin in ignorance. Adam sinned knowing what God's word had said and knowing what God expected of him. So Adam was in that sense a prophet. How was Adam in that same sense a priest? He was a priest in the same sense that he was continually giving unto God sacrifices of praise and service. Adam, before sin came into the world, would have been continually giving himself up as this holy sacrifice. Now, at that point, there was no need for a sacrifice of sins because there was still no sin. But there were sacrifices 
of another nature being offered. We see these truths found in Hebrews 13.15. If you want to turn over there, Hebrews 13.15 gives us a little bit of uh, information about this, about the, the praise or the sacrifice of praise. And I believe this is what Adam would have been giving, the sacrifice of praise. It tells us, Hebrews 13.15, by Him, that's Christ, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of God, of praise to God continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 5. 1 Peter 2, verse number 5. We see the same principle of spiritual sacrifices. 1 Peter 2, verse 5, He also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. And then Romans 12, 1. Romans 12, 1. The Apostle Paul was begging with those at Rome to offer these spiritual sacrifices. He says in verse number 1 of Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's hard for us to imagine an environment where sin was not, uh, was not there. But we understand that before the fall, and you study this out in Scripture, before the fall, Adam was this picture of this prophet and this priest. Thirdly, we see that Adam was also a king in a sense, that he had been given dominion over all of lower creation. He was not to rule according to his own desires, but he was to rule according to God's demands and God's commands. So he ruled in accordance with right knowledge and a loving devotion to God. Now here's the mystery, and here's the question. Did Adam know he was in those three offices of prophet, priest, and king? And I would tell you without hesitation, he had no idea, and he would not have identified himself and said, I'm a prophet, I'm a priest, and I'm a king. He was a picture, he was a type. He was a picture and a type of what Jesus Christ ultimately would be the perfect fulfillment of. Remember, in Adam, all man fell. In Adam's sin, all man is held guilty and responsible. Even if we would not be guilty of personal sin, we would be guilty of falling in Adam. He was the representative. And by the same token, because Jesus Christ fulfilled all things perfectly yet without sin, those of us that are in Christ, we also are partakers of that great truth. So we by no means are saying that at one point Adam was God. That's not what I'm even hinting at or suggesting or even implying. However, he wasn't even those things in an official sense. But we can say that he, had he not sinned, he would have been a representative of what God would be and who God is. A man by the name of G.I. Williamson made this quote statement about that. He said, of course, we do not say that there was in Adam a consciousness of these three offices, nor do we mean that he was called a prophet, priest, and king in the official sense. What What we mean is that the work of a prophet, priest, and king was implicit in Adam's headship. 
Had he not sinned, it would have become more patent. In other words, it would have become, it would have become more evident. How long was it before Adam fell? You remember when we studied that particular chapter, we were not told exactly how long it was, but we came to the great theological conclusion, and the answer was that it wasn't long. So not long was he in this condition before the fall. However, even though he didn't have these official offices of prophet, priest, and king, we know that when man fell, he lost his ability for his entire life to be a prophet, priest, and king. Sin brought ruin to man. Adam would have lost any status that he had as a prophet because he believed falsely concerning God. And when we study out the Scripture, we find that uh, even Adam's understanding, the Bible teaches that he, he becomes darkened. He even becomes a bit hostile to the truth. He, 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 his hostility grows. He fell into a condition by the fall, by sin. He fell into a condition of error, falsehood, and suppressing even the truth. It reminds us of what we read in Romans chapter 1, verse number 18 with regard to creation. And with regard to, even as Paul began that letter to the church at Rome, in Romans 1.18, Paul wrote these words. He said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, understood by the things that are made, even his eternal, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And of course, this goes on to give a list of, of the horrific idea of what man creates in his mind about who God is, because that when they knew God, this is the key to that verse, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So Adam would have lost any status that he had as prophet. Number two, Adam would have lost his status of priest because sin cut him off from the presence of God. Sin cut him off. See, Jesus Christ can never be cut off from the Father because he's without sin. Christ can never be cut off from the Father. Even as he hung on the cross, he was not cut off. He was taking on the sin and the punishment and taking on the full wrath of the Father, but he was not cut off. Adam because of his sin, was cut off from the presence of God. Because of sin, man also lost his desire and his ability to even offer up acceptable sacrifices to God of praise and service. Man became guilty, and as we refer to it, he became morally corrupt, totally depraved. He became his nature became that of one cut off from God. Adam loses that idea or that type or picture of a king, king, kingship as well because now instead of being a king, he becomes a servant. A servant of what? A servant to sin. A servant of sin is also a slave to death and a slave of the devil. So instead of being able to rule now in righteousness, which is what God told Adam to do, rule in according to the knowledge of me, 
He now has lost that ability to be able to rule a kingdom because now he's being declared as being unrighteous. What happened after the fall? Adam and Eve and every human being since then are now subject to the harshness of life. We're subject to the harshness of nature. Remember, Adam was told that you will work by the sweat of your brow, yet your land will be unproductive. You'll be surrounded by dangerous beasts and animals, and you're going to be under the subjection of tyrannical human rulers. That's why we ought not be surprised when we see evil in ruling in high places. It's a result of the fall, folks. Now, God is sovereign in all those things, and there's no ruler who's come to power without God's ordination. It's, it, is God's, it is God's purposes and God's plans that are being carried out. But I want you to understand that originally these things were given so that Adam would be this accurate picture of who God is. Now, ultimately, did God know that Adam was going to sin? Of course he did. And yet, God in His sovereignty and God is in His mercy still had provided a way of redemption knowing that Adam would fail. He knew that every single human being born after Adam would fail, yet He still provided a prophet, a priest, and a king. And long before Jesus Christ came and became those things that man could see all throughout the Bible, how many times do you see the word prophet, priest, and king, especially in the Old Testament? True prophets and false prophets. True priests and false priests. Good kings and bad kings. You study out the life of the kings, you find out most of the kings were bad. You find out most, many of the prophets were false. But yet all throughout redemptive history, there had been this plan that Jesus Christ would come and be this perfect prophet, priest, and king, and yet we would see all those things and all those people that were not the true prophet, were not the true priest, and were not the true kings. It's amazing to me that a lot of people read the Scriptures and they don't make the connection between why so many prophets and priests and kings are mentioned in the Old Testament. It's intentional. It's intentional to get us to understand that there is a coming of a real prophet, priest, and king. Louis Burkhoff, in one of his theology commentaries, says this, It was necessary that Christ as our mediator should be prophet, priest, and king. As prophet, he represents God with man. As priest, he represents man in the presence of God. And as king, he exercises dominion and restores the original dominion of man. Restores the original intent of man. From the time of the fall, from the very moment of the fall, God began to prepare the world through the prophets for the last Adam or the second Adam, which was his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ would come to restore man to his original purpose. Part of that preparation was to give the instruction and the institution of these three separate offices of prophet, priest, and king. 
The Bible's not just a bunch of random thoughts just kind of thrown into a book. They are joined thoughts. It is the, it is the plan of redemption. This prophet, priest, and king is, in, is the entirety of what we see when we see the plan of redemption. So as we consider what happens after the fall, God establishes these offices of prophet, priest, and king. As I said, he never told Adam, Adam, I'm going to make you a prophet. I'm going to make you a priest. I'm going to make you a king. But after the fall, God did establish those offices. The word Messiah, when we see that word primarily in the Old Testament, or the word Christ, both of those words have the meaning of anointed one. One who is chosen and appointed and selected in order to prepare a world for the reception of Christ, for the reception of Messiah, who would be this anointed one, that person must be anointed by God in order to do what? As we learned in the previous chapter of our confession, to undo what the first Adam did. Undo the effects of sin. So what did God do in His plan? He establishes three separate anointed offices. In Israel, there was a prophet, there were priests, and there were kings. Clear anointed offices. Again, the, the uh, quote I gave you before from a man named G.I. Williamson says, it's highly significant that much of the Old Testament revelation in preparation for Christ's coming centered in the three anointed, that is, messianic offices of prophet, priest, and king. We believe it was because of the sinful depravity of man that God made three distinct and separate offices borne by separate lines of individuals. From that which had originally been part and parcel to sinless manhood. By thus instituting each office distinct from the others, God could reveal the dismal imperfection of man's nature and also show the perfection required of his son. It, this is really kind of difficult to put into words, but if Adam doesn't fall, there's no need for the offices of prophet, priest, and king. So in the fall and in the failure of mankind, we're continually reminded of man's incapability of restoring himself back to the original purpose and intent that God had for him. People often say, you know, the Bible seems to be filled with failures of people. And do you know there's more failure in Scripture than there is what we call success? We read accounts of every saint of God failing in carrying out God's perfect plan in perfect obedience. There's not a single individual character in Scripture other than Jesus Christ that fulfilled the law perfectly. And because of those, even a single failure, that disqualifies that individual from having even the capability of serving in those offices to restore himself back to that original condition. Now the argument could be, well, what about the prophets and the priests and the kings that were good? None of them by what they did provided a means or a way to restore themselves back to their original purpose. But what instead they were, were pointing people to the true prophet, 
the true priest and the true king. Every sacrifice the Old Testament priest made, the once a year sacrifice for the atonement of the people's sins when he would go into the Holy of Holies, was not because he was, he was capable of doing it. It was pointing to the reality of Jesus Christ. When Jesus hung on that cross and that veil between the holy of holies and the holy place was torn in two, that was, the, that was the sign that there would be no more sacrifice because the perfect sacrifice had now been made. Jesus is serving even in the office of priest as he's hanging on the cross and he's dying. He's in one of those three offices. Just some random names. We can see people throughout the Old Testament who were prophets. Uh, Moses was a prophet. Elijah. Isaiah. Elisha. Samuel. These prophets would speak to the people, not their own words, but they were speaking to God or speaking to them God's words on God's behalf. They would do that by verbally speaking it. They would do that in some cases by writing those things. But they were, these were prophets. We read the Bible and we see that there were some priests. Priests such as Eli and Aaron. Abithar. Those priests would offer up prayers and praises and sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. So you've got the prophet speaking on his behalf. You have the priest offering up sacrifices on the behalf of the people, all so that it will be acceptable to God. And then, of course, we know there were kings. The most familiar ones are probably Saul, and David, Solomon, Uzziah. These men were not chosen to be kings because they were more powerful or more rich or more, or more filled with wisdom. They were chosen to rule over God's people as God's representatives. They were to rule on behalf of God. That's why even today in government, no matter where in the world it is, a ruler is, is ruling on the behalf of God. And every ruler will be held accountable to how they ruled people. Not just believing rulers, unbelieving rulers will give an account to how they dealt with people. A place of leadership, a place of kingship is a place that you are acting on the behalf as God's representative. So each of those offices were pointing to one. They weren't pointing to one messianic prophet one messianic priest, one messianic king, they were pointing to one individual who would be all three. Now that's one thing that these people's names I gave you were not. Moses was not prophet, priest, and king. They were not in all three offices. But Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of all three of those anointed offices. He is the anointed one. That one anointed individual. So they all pointed to Christ as the Messiah. There were false prophets. There were dishonest priests. There were ungodly kings. Sounds a lot like today. There are false prophets. There are dishonest priests. And there are ungodly kings. 
But whether or not these prophets and priests and kings were good or bad, in the Old Testament, even the bad ones were pointing to Christ. One of the things that, this is kind of a side note, but one of the things that always has bothered me is in our, and a lot of times in our, in our Bible studies, especially with small children, our younger children, we tend to take out all the bad people and we, and we only put the quote-unquote good people and we say, now here's the good Bible characters. You realize that the bad Bible characters were also doing the same thing. They, the bad Bible characters were pointing to the same Messiah. Cyrus, for example, read the account of Cyrus, how God used a wicked king to reveal his plan, his purposes. And I think what we've done, again, this is maybe just my opinion, I think what we've done is we've created this, this catalog of Bible heroes, and we say, now here's all the heroes who did everything God told them to do, which we know is not the case. None of those people I read were perfect people. I mean, we, we could go simply look at Moses and... Moses seemingly does most everything right, but one failure, and he, he lashes out in anger, and he strikes a rock when he's not supposed to strike the rock. God says, Moses, because of that one thing, you're not going into the promised land. Now, in reality, there really aren't Bible heroes. They're all people saved by the grace of God. But don't ignore the bad characters. Don't ignore Rahab the harlot. And say, there's nothing to learn from Rahab. Oh, no, no, there's a lot to learn in the story of Rahab. Read about the scarlet line. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of things you could say. How could God have actually blessed that? She lied. Exactly. There's so many things in the accounts of the Old Testament that we look at and we say, this is all part of God's plan. Somehow in our world, in our society, we've decided that all the bad things happening in the world, that can't be part of God's plan. Yet all throughout redemptive history, God has even used the most wicked of rulers and most wicked of kings to accomplish His purposes. So when we look and we say, how can that wicked person be placed in authority? Because God put them there. How can this be part of God's plan? This is, this is tearing apart a country. This is tearing apart. I don't understand it all, but I do believe in the sovereignty of God. And those bad characters, those bad kings, don't just blow by them in your Bible reading and say, well, those are bad kings, nothing to learn from them. There's probably as much or more to learn from the bad kings as there is the good kings. And again, I'm using the word good very, very loosely. Because there are none good. So even from the good and true understanding, we learn about the glory of this future Christ. From the evil, from the false things, the dishonest things, we clearly see man's inability and how much more he needs God's divine intervention. When we look at fallen people in Scripture, we see more and more, we're reminded over and over again how we are unable to restore ourselves back to that original intended purpose. So during that Old Testament period, Christ was prophesied as being a coming prophet, a coming king, and a coming priest. Not only did he see pictured, see a lot of times you have pictures and types. They were, that's all they were. They were meant to be a picture and a type. They were never meant to actually be the thing they were picturing. Does that make sense? So a shadow, a type, a picture. They were meant to give us an idea of that. Like David 
David himself is a type or a picture of Christ, but he's not Christ. But Jesus was not only pictured in types and shadows, but he actually was that which was prophesied about. We see in Isaiah chapter number 42, Isaiah 42, this is one of the references uh, to, and I think we may, have read the, we may have read this last week, but in Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 6, we see Isaiah declaring the, declaring the Messiah as being called and appointed by the Father to the office of prophet. Isaiah 42 verse 1, he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. This prophecy is clearly about the Lord Jesus Christ. The title he holds here in this text is as servant, the servant of God the Father. Above every other prophet, above every other servant, Christ was the servant of the Most High when he became the servant of servants. At the same time Christ is a servant, he's also the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Imagine that. How many people can you declare in this world who are the servant of servants, yet at the same time they're the King of kings and the Lord of lords? It just doesn't happen. Christ is the Father's elect. He is first. There is none so perfect as Christ. The Father delights in His Son, and the Father's delight is eternal. There has never been a moment in Human history, will there ever be, or even before the foundation of the world, that God the Father was not pleased with the Son? He's never looked and said, this displeases me, because He was sinless. He delights in His person. He delights in His offices. God the Father delights in Christ as the prophet, the priest, and the king. He delights in the work that Christ has accomplished. That, that pleasure or that delight that the Father has in Christ is the same delight that He has in us when He sees us. He's not delighted in you, folks. He's not delighted in me. He's delighted in His Son. Still to this day, if Christ and God the Father looked upon you without the righteousness of Christ, there would be nothing to see but sin that must be paid for and the wages of sin is death. I still can't get my mind around the reality that when God the Father looks at me or looks at another brother or sister in Christ, He doesn't see any of me. He sees the righteous of Christ. We're tempted in our day and age to say, well, He's got to see some of the good that I've done. He's got to see some of my righteousness. No, the Bible declares in this same Old Testament book that your righteousness is as filthy rags. The only reason your service is accepted to God is because of Christ. 
The only reason the prayer, even as we began our meeting today, is even accepted by the Father is because of Christ. The only reason the preaching of His Word is acceptable to God is if it's acceptable, if it's in Christ. A prophet was the one who had knowledge of of God, remember, who taught the truth, gave the law, and he would be a light to the Gentiles. He would open blind eyes. He was not only prophesied to those actual offices, he was the actual fulfillment of the prophecy. In Psalm 110, verse 4, we see this prophecy regarding the office of priest. This one's a little bit more obscure when people read it. It's very easy to just kind of read it and move through it quickly. But it is a prophecy. And in Psalm 110, verse number 4, the Bible tells us, The Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is a declaration, the same thing we read out of Hebrews chapter 5 as we began, that God has made him, and that's a reference to Christ. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. No beginning and no ending. Here we see Christ being appointed by the Father to the office of priest. And then in Psalm 2, we see it again, verses 6 through 12. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 12. We see the Father appointing Christ as the King who will rule the nations. Psalm 2, verse 6, Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and ye perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. That trust in Him is a direct reference to the Son. In verse 12, kiss the Son, capitalized. That's Christ. Christ would be, in essence, this three in one. Prophet, priest, and king. Not not only would He just be an average or a good or a bad prophet, priest, and king, He would be the preeminent, perfect prophet. He would be the preeminent, perfect priest. He would be the preeminent, perfect king. As the perfect prophet, he would not only reveal the truth of God in his teaching, he would declare himself to actually be the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in essence, not only was he revealing the truth of God, he was revealing that he is the truth. As the perfect preeminent priest... He would not only offer up a sacrifice for sin. I think you'll see the pattern here. He would be the sacrifice. The Lamb of God. He, by the once offering of Himself, would take away the sin from His people forever. 
He wouldn't just make this possible. He would take away the sin of his people forever by his sacrifice. So this perfect prophet comes onto the scene, points to truth, announces I'm the truth itself, then says I will also voluntarily offer myself as a sacrifice for sins, and I will actually be the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. And as this perfect preeminent king, he would not only rule over his people, but as a king, he would also deliver them from bondage. Bondage of what? The bondage of Satan, the bondage of death, the bondage of sin. You know, one of the great responsibilities of a king is to protect them. One of the great responsibilities of a king is not just to protect them, but also to show them and to guide them in the way they should go while still exercising authority over them. Jesus Christ as a perfect king acts in perfect authority, but in that authority, he gives us protection and guidance and rules us for our good and for his glory. You realize when we just submit to God and we just, uh, and we just make Him the Lord of our life and we decide in our mind and we say, listen, God, everything God's doing in my life is for my good. That is a submission to His authority. Authority that He is more than worthy of. I know we often get in these patterns where we think we know what's best for us. We only know what's best for us if it follows according to the authority and the guidance and the direction and the protecting hand of God. If what you think is best for you leads you away from God, that's not God's kingship. If you wake up one day and say, the best thing for me to do would be to run away from God today, that's not coming from God. No person wanders away from the flock, wanders away from the fold because God told them to. They wander away from the flock because God is no longer the authority in their life. To me, biblically, a child of God is not given the option to worship God or not. We're commanded to worship. And to not worship God is to be in disobedience of God. He is our authority. Even in Ephesians, as we're studying on Wednesdays and on Sunday morning, in, in Ephesians 1.22, Paul wrote these words, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Christ has this ultimate authority and eternally all things will be put under his feet. I want to finish, and this is, a, this is a little bit lengthy of a quote from R.C. Sproul on this matter. And I, I want to read this because I think it, it really summarizes, encapsulizes all of this. And we'll, we'll finish with this particular quote. He wrote, Prophets, priests, and kings functioned as mediators in the Old Testament. Yet Paul says, there is only one mediator between God and man. That's 1 Timothy 2.5. Paul, of course, is not repudiating what was done in former days. Instead, he is speaking of a mediator in the ultimate sense. Only one mediator is both truly God and truly man. Only one mediator has a divine nature and a human nature. Only the God-man participates in both deity and humanity, and in that regard, Christ is utterly unique. 
Only one mediator has the ability ultimately to affect the ultimate goal of mediation, our redemption and reconciliation. That was beyond the ability of Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Aaron, Levi, or any other prophet or priest. The work of ultimate redemption could not be mediated by David, Hezekiah, or any other king. It could not even be accomplished by Moses, the mediator of the law. He was not the one who brought about the reconciliation by his own person and work. Paul is speaking in an ultimate sense when he speaks of the only mediator and his work of mediation. That mediator, of course, is Christ. That may raise the hackles of people who embrace relativism and pluralism, who can tolerate no claim of religious exclusivity. Western culture assumes that there are many paths to God and that there are many mediators, such as Buddha, Confucius, and Muhammad. People are repulsed by the idea that there is only one way of salvation. But the fact is that only one man qualifies to be the mediator. No one but Christ has the necessary qualifications to effect reconciliation between God and man. Missing from all other religions is an atonement that satisfies the justice of God. They have only men. Christianity alone has a God-man, one who shares in both the nature of God and the nature of our humanity. Couldn't put it better. Those offices of prophet, priest, and king. Next Sunday, we'll look at these offices still, but we'll look at them in the view of they are not just historical offices. They are present and ongoing offices that Christ assumes and is active in even today. All right, so I hope we'll be looking forward to that next week. All right, let's go ahead and take a few minutes. And if there's uh, any questions that we have regarding this today, we'll try to answer those the best we can.